I think that's the one thing about it is that if you keep making your work and you're engaged and involved, things happen. Hello, print friends, and welcome to Outlaw October, a month-long deep dive into the hearts and minds of the outlaw printmakers. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. And this month, we're doing something a little different, a little exploration into one corner of the print world. Who they are, what they do, and what the heck makes an outlaw an outlaw. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Zambrano. Together we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. I have some exciting news for you print friends before we kick off today's episode. If you haven't already heard, I am hosting a print event. In partnership with Print Austin, I'm bringing a month-long printmaking celebration to Santa Fe, New Mexico called What Else But Print Santa Fe. And we're hosting a print exchange to celebrate. Never been in a print exchange before? It's a real fun deal. You send an edition of prints, in this case 12, to me. And I send you back a set of 10 from printmakers from truly around the world who are also participating. You get to collect work from your fellow printmakers for the cost of shipping, which is $30 in the U.S. and $50 outside the U.S. in case you are curious. We're also in the process of looking for a venue to exhibit this print exchange here, so you might even get a little line on your CV for participating as well. Check out the link in the show notes for more details. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, and you know they're getting in the spirit of things here for Outlaw October. My guest this week is Bill Fick, and Speedball has generously donated a six-color set of their professional relief inks. Formulated to possess all of the working properties that artists demand, Speedball professional relief inks are made from the highest quality, light, fast pigments and contain zero fillers. They roll out consistently and transfer beautifully, resulting in an intense, crisp archival print. And this batch does include their flagship color, Super Graphic Black, which just happens to be created by the world-renowned relief artist, Bill Fick. Head on over to this episode's listing on the Hello Print Friend Instagram and see how to enter this super fun giveaway. In this episode, Bill and I talk about his growing up in Venezuela and later Saudi Arabia, what makes a cartoon a cartoon, high and lowbrow art, and of course, skulls, skulls, skulls. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to make heads roll with Bill Fick. Hi Bill, how's it going? Hey Miranda, what's up? Hey, it's so nice to see you again. Yeah, good to see you. Yeah, wonderful. Totally wonderful with your new brand new mic. I know, I know. We're on the the maiden voyage of this like professional podcasting mic. It's very, very exciting. Yeah. Very Very cool. Well, I'm I'm really happy that we're gonna get a chance to to talk and to have you on the podcast. It was great meeting you in Santa Fe. I guess it was a few months ago now, a few weeks ago. Who knows what is time? Yeah. Yeah. And and I know that you're someone who a lot of our listeners know and are really interested in. So I'm 
really excited to share your story and to get to know you a little better. Fantastic. Great. Awesome. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. So before we dive in, would you please let people know who you are, where you are, what you do? Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm Bill Fick. I live in Durham, North Carolina. I have a, my practice is here in Durham and I teach at Duke University. I teach printmaking, drawing, comics, zines, but yeah, I'm a, I guess I'm a teacher, artist, print maniac, print enthusiast to the max. And yeah, I know it's, it's printmaking is life, man. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So that's where you are now, but where did you grow up and what role did art have in that part of your life? Yeah, well, so I actually, my dad worked for an oil company, worked for Exxon, well, Esso, when I was born. I was born in Indonesia, and short, we left Indonesia shortly after I was born. So I was born in 1963, and then my family, we left there around the, in 64, I believe early 64. And then we moved to Venezuela. That's where I grew up as a kid. We moved to Eastern Venezuela, which was kind of a very, kind of a remote part of the country, sort of. And then we moved to the Western part of the country. So I, at the Western part of Venezuela is where I basically grew up until I was about 14. Mm-hmm. And, but I live in an American community. It was sort of those, it was sort of the way it worked back in those days where you grew up within the community, you know, the, like the, the staff, the people that your parents worked with, my dad worked for, worked with. Yeah. So yeah, we I had our own camp. That, it was like a military way, yeah. camp sort of thing. Kind of. I mean, it wasn't, but it was a camp situation. Yeah. 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 I was thinking like when I, when I was living in Thailand, you would meet people who had grown up in Southeast Asia and were mm-hmm. American mm-hmm. and you would never know that they'd grown up in Southeast Asia. They had right. just, they talk like Californians. Right. They didn't yeah. speak Thai. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They like, yeah. they you would try and ask them, oh, so you've been here so long. Like, can you tell me about this aspect of Thai culture that I don't quite uh-huh, think I'm uh-huh. understanding? And they'd be like, no. <laughs> so I think, I think expat communities like that still yeah. definitely exist. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually when I, in Venezuela though, we did learn Spanish and I mean, I went to an American school and we spoke English at school, but mm-hmm. the odd thing was that the Venezuelan management people they, their kids were in one side of the school and we were on the other side of the school. So it was strange. Mm-hmm. We went to the same school, but we were separated. So very strange. I guess that was sort of a leftovers from the olden days where the, the expats didn't totally integrate with the local community. Although the weird thing about it is that our, our parents, we all hung out. We didn't, I didn't, I got to say the kids were more, we didn't always hang out with the Venezuelan kids, but we were friends with them, but it was definitely the Americans. And then you had the Venezuelan, Mm -hmm. but we all lived in the same, we lived, we were neighbors. We hung out. My parents were friends with everybody. So it was a weird kind of not totally integrated, but definitely we spoke Spanish everywhere else, except when we were in in our family or whatever. So, I mean, I, I became pretty fluent obviously, but because I didn't go to a school, my Spanish was very street Spanish and and like what I, because I would watch TV and it was all in Spanish. So I had this strange kind of Spanish education where it was like my grammar is not that great because it's very, it's just sort of a street Spanish. Yeah, I guess or the street, job done. Street Spanish from Venezuela, which is different than other Spanish in some ways in terms of accent and lingo. Yeah. And so so. Did, were you aware that you were having sort of an unusual childhood when you were in it? 
sort of, it was, I, it was unusual when we come back to the States in the summer, we'd have our summer vacation. We'd come to the States. My mom's from, from Florida and South Carolina. My dad was from, he was from New Jersey. So we would visit family in the States. And I knew that I was different in that when I, people would say, well, who, who like if I was out somewhere and I'd run into some kids, they'd say, well, like, who are you? What, where are you from? And I'd say, oh, I'm from Venezuela. They'd be like, what? What's that? Like, <laughs> so I knew I was, I, knew, I always knew that would get attention. Right. Like being different that way. But so, yeah, it was, it was, it was, I didn't know it that way. I mean, actually, so after Venezuela, my, my, we moved to Saudi Arabia. However, I was already in, let's see, it was in a boarding school at the time and then moved to, I went into college. And so by that time, I really wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't, hadn't gone to school there. So, but that was a much bigger, sort of camp setup. I mean, a huge, huge oil setup. The the bit, the company was this massive, huge company. As opposed to in Venezuela, it was a smaller, I mean, it was, it was Exxon, but it was a smaller kind of oil field kind of situation. As opposed to Saudi Arabia, it was this massive international multi, the workers came from all over the world and everything. So it was a much different experience. Uh, but that what was interesting about that is that I, I was, that I really, because that was not where I grew up. So when I moved there, it was like, wow, this is a really interesting place. And so I was really interested in sort of learning a little about the culture. I didn't learn the language, and but a lot of my friends were from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So I got to know more about that cult, those cultures and sort of that the history and the, the politics and stuff like that. So, so you were in, in boarding school in Saudi Arabia? No, no, in Massachusetts. I went. Okay. To, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So yeah. You, yeah. See, a lot yeah. of people would go away because. The schools, the American schools would go up to a certain like ninth grade. And then actually when I was, when I was coming, so I was still living in Venezuela when I went to boarding school, but in Venezuela, they nationalized the oil companies. And so they closed down certain school, the schools, because it was, became the, the Americans. We still live there, but things changed a bit. So anyway, a lot of, some kids would go away earlier than if they would have stayed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but anyway, Point being is that when I moved to Saudi Arabia, that was a flip in that I I didn't grow up there, so my experience there was was learning about Arab culture, and right, Saudi right, Arabia yeah. Because so it was pretty, that was really very interesting, and it was such a different cultural experience. But still, there were tons of expats there, and like you say, the com- the company there was it was run by a consortium of American big oil companies, so there were a lot of people from California and tech. I mean. When I grew up in Venezuela, it was mostly people like the Americans were a lot of them from Louisiana, Texas. But when I got to Saudi Arabia, I was meeting people from all over the world. And then a lot of Californians, because one of the companies was mm-hmm. was, a, was a big was a big oil company from California. So that's so interesting. And yeah. yeah. And while you're having all these experiences and living in Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Massachusetts, <laughs> where did art fit into that? young bills right right yeah i mean it was i i i was my mom is an artsy was an artsy person sort of craftsy person so i was kind of she was always kind of making stuff like paper mache and things like that so i was kind of around it and i was always interested in art Uh, and we oddly enough as a kid i was like that kind of was the what i wanted to be but i didn't even know what it meant really i don't Mm -hmm. know why but i wanted to i wanted to be an artist, but I really didn't know what artist, being an artist meant. So I don't know where that came from. But I think it's just because the idea that it sounded like a, 
you could draw, you can make pictures, things like that. And I was, I wasn't like the, the total art kid who was always drawing, but I did like to draw. And I was sort of like, there was some, there was a girl in my, like fifth, like my fourth grade class who was a really good drawer. And I was like, oh man, I got to be able to draw as good as her. And, or I was a little jealous, whatever. But, uh, but yeah, I think it, it was sort of, I don't know, but kind of an unconscious thing in some ways that I wanted to do that. I don't know, really don't know why, but, but then as I got older, I, I did start taking, I took some art classes in high school and like that. And then in college, I was an art major and I, I went to Duke as an undergrad, but, and we had a very small art program. I mean, I think there were like three of us were majoring in art and I still was sort of not clear why I was majoring in art, but I just, it was just, sort of, I took a ton of art history classes, which was really good. And my print teacher was a very, someone who was really energetic and excited. And she would, she really, really instilled some real interest in printmaking at the time. That was sort of the, my first real experience with printmaking. Her name is Meryl Schatzman. And she was part of the sort of the Wisconsin crowd back mm-hmm. then. So her group would have been, oh, I'm not sure exactly when she was there, but Art Werger and Beth Grabowski. And those were some artists that were there when she was there. Anyway, so I, I got a little taste of like, because she pulled out a portfolio of uh, from the Madison crew, from that her crew. And I was like, oh my God, I was blown away. It was like, geez, that's crazy. I, I mean, it was like, I just, I, and I didn't know what I was, was looking at really. So there were these amazing like tin color aquatints or whatever. Yeah. I don't, it was just some really, yeah. I, I didn't even know what, I, thinking back on it, I just remembered like, I was like, wow, this is really amazing stuff. But I didn't, I didn't really know anything about it because, but she was just showing us like, hey, look at this. This is what printmaking is about. And, but I kind of gravitated pretty quickly to relief prints. And so, so yeah, so. In high school, I got a there was a, I got a little taste of it because I did take I did take some sort of a print class or art class that involved some printing. So, but then when I got to college is where I started undergrad, where I started to get into it. But I still was sort of like not sure exactly. And then really what happened was I was I didn't know what I was going to do. And then I I said okay, well I'll I'll become a furniture designer. And the reason that because <laughs> because in North Carolina that furniture design is there's a history of furniture in North Carolina. And I had met a furniture designer and my family kind of knew some people who were furniture designers in the furniture industry. Cause by this time my parents had, had left, my dad had retired. So they moved to, to North Carolina and yeah. I had family in North Carolina. So anyway, furniture design was like, Oh yeah, that's a, you can get a, you could be a furniture designer. That's sort of a real job for an artist. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll try that. So I went to art college up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Kendall College of Art and Design. And I don't know what it's called today. It's in Grand Rapids, but they have a, they have a well-known, or they did, or they still do, I don't know, furniture design school, but that just didn't work. I didn't, I didn't like it. It didn't mm. like it at all. Anyway, so then after that, I, I went back to North, came back to North Carolina and just sort of tried to figure some things out and took a year off. And then I met some people some students at UNC Greensboro, University of North Carolina in Greensboro, mm-hmm. and I was living near Greensboro. So I got to know that program a little bit. And then I did. So then I went into grad school there after being off out of school for about a year or so. And uh, yeah, that's where I really got into printmaking. And uh, so, yeah, I'll, I'll sort of stop there if you have any <laughs> catch up. I've been talking straight for a few minutes. No, no. I mean, I, I, I think that 
all that's really good. And I was curious because I know that cartoons and comics and now zines are a big part of what you do, but you didn't mention that much of it was part of growing up. Were you a, a comic kid? Yeah, that's that's pretty fascinating. I mean, I I so I was I had a, a box full of comics, but I actually really like never read the comic. I would always look at, <laughs> look at the pictures and kind of I would read them, but it was more I was more interested in the pictures. But in it's what's in I graduated from grad school in 1990, and so things the the separation of sort of fine art and graphic arts and things like that was still pretty strong. It was mm. like so when in my education as in grad school. Nobody would have brought up the idea of like, oh, your your work is has comic elements to it, or because it was it was it was still it was it was similar to what it is now, but it was more. I was looking at a lot of gothic art, art these sort of goofy follies. The, the sort of not the the not the. I mean, I was looking at all the the rock star stuff from that era, but I mean, I was always looking for the strange like the illustrations, the kind of com- the more comicy kind of stuff that that weren't meant to be comics, obviously, but, but were, were sort of these sidebar. There's these, there's these carvings in cathedrals called misery chords. They're like these f- funny, strange carvings that are underneath the seats in the, in the choir stalls. And they're kind of a strange thing. And I got into those, but basically they're very humorous kind of body, strange story mm. like narratives. So I was always kind of looking for those sort of off the beaten path kind of got art. But that's because, again, my I, I didn't have any teachers that were like comics people. Yeah. So they, 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 it would have been really obvious for them to say, well, do you look at R. Crumb or are you interested in early American comics or things like that? But the artists that I did get to, to know about and really got really interested in, and they, they were sort of in comic-y in a way, but like I had, one of my teachers was a studio assistant for Max Beckman at Wash U. Mm. So he had... He was teaching at, at UNC Greensboro when I was there. So I got to know a lot about Max Beckman. And I think if you look at Beckman's work, it's, it's, I mean, I was very derivative of Beckman in my early, when I was in school, very bold black lines and narrative, real, real packed kind of scenes and stuff like that. Uh, and then this guy also knew Philip Gustin. So I got mm. to, you know, he told us a lot about Gustin. And then obviously Gustin's, have, his work was heavily influenced by comics. But even then, the, the teacher that that te- even that teacher was would did not even really say like, oh yeah, you should really look closely at comics. So the comics thing kind of came later. Mm. I, I got more interested in that later as I as I got further and further away from school because it was like, hey, this is great material. Why not look at it? So, but it's you know. I've been thinking about this question recently. Actually, Tim and I have been talking about it a little bit in terms of what makes because usually what makes something comic e uh-huh. is the, the my art <laughs> historical training there point coming out <laughs> has to do with the way in which the human form is stylized like it's kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. like if you if you do a picture of a house plant with these kind of round exaggerated forms people won't necessarily look at it and say that's comic e it's something about like the person right it's like it's right. it's the way that we draw the human form mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that I could totally see has roots, those art historical roots going back into hundreds of years ago in, in European mm-hmm. traditions of, of yeah. the way in which a little figure gets simplified mm-hmm. and exaggerated in this really particular way. I mean, you could yeah. even see it in like 
the figures in Bosch's Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. There's like a universality to the figures. Maybe that's it. Maybe it has to do with the fact that like it could be a specific person, but it doesn't need to be right. because things have been right. kind of the, the specifics have sort of been sanded off. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, and that's what I think is the print make the print history that I really love. If you, so I think like Goya, if you look at Goya, his characters are always sort of squat. They're not mm -hmm. attenuated, long, tall, skinny. And I, I just love Goya. Be, you know, be, I think that proportion for me is really important. And again, Beckman, his his characters tended to be sort of like squat kind of, not all, but but there there was this sort of like, uh, yeah, like a cartoony kind of like in some of Picasso's like stuff mm. was his characters. I'm, I really love that scale of artists or of art, like uh, Paula Rego's work too. I don't know. Her, her, her characters are sort of three quarters size. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, it I seems really, like if, I'm attracted I'm just thinking that. about it, like, like it is something to do with the, the squatness that makes it, cause it's, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of artists like, like Wunderlich who elongate their figures or yeah, Dolly yeah. who elongate their figures. And those aren't, yeah. you don't consider those cartoons. So right, there's something right. about that action that makes it, more right. surrealist but it's yeah. yeah it's like it's the rounding and the um, yeah totally totally the the kind of like softness uh -huh. that you give the forms right. how interesting right yeah i mean if you think of early american comics like mutt and jeff and the cats and jammer kids early mickey mouse they're all they're all that sort of squat kind of compressed scale and then they're and they're rounded off right they're that, that rounded off quality so for me, that's I, I I love that era or that 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 kind of character. Jacques Collot did a lot of those mm -hmm. little squat characters, and that's why when I contemporary comics, I'm not really interested in like the new <laughs> look because it's all very angular and it's like yep. very stretched, kind of well, it really uh, yeah, I would say angular and like some manga too. I don't like the I like I, I go looking for the, the the characters that are more rounded off. I don't know. Mm. It's sort of weird, but it's yeah, like, it's so I, I'm just totally, it's a, it's bizarre. I don't know. Well, not bizarre, but it's, it's really interesting in my brain. like when I, when I, what I'm a, attracted to in terms of visual narrative characters, I really like those rounded off characters. <laughs> well, it, I think it's so cool that, that, I mean, that, yeah, you just know that about yourself and can lean into that. Cause I, mm -hmm. I we all have, what we like and what we don't like. Like I've got, mm -hmm. I have mm -hmm. pet peeves of imagery that is, uh, if I see uh -huh. it and this is, this is one that if I'm ever during like a show, uh -huh. it's uh, gas masks. I'm just oh. like, oh, kids oh. <laughs> again with a gas mask. Like, yeah. like there's something yeah. about, like, there's like student art where like gas masks appear a lot. Yeah. So I mean, and then as I often joke about like when I'm, when I'm jurying, I'm, I'm such a, an animal nerd that I'll uh -huh. like, I'll be uh -huh. like, oh, uh -huh. Man, I just picked up everything with an animal, <laughs> and so like we have to be aware of these things in ourselves, yeah, and like well, and how much we can lean into them. And of course, like being a juror, you need to be more right, more democratic, right. of course. But like when right. it's your own work, it's like yeah, lean into what yeah. lights you up because that's what's going to keep mm -hmm. it sustainable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. And yeah. I think another thing that's kind of interesting about it is that for me, like when I my, the the work that I was doing right out of grad school and these bigger narrative editorial narrative pieces, it was sort of a, I couldn't, I had to make them squat because oh, right. I wanted to, to, to build this image. 
and put a bunch of characters in there. If they're really tall, it would hard. I couldn't fit them in. So I, so I probably had a, that's probably some cut some conscious thing where I was able to squeeze them down into a, a rectangle that was three. Let's say if I was making a print that was three feet by four feet and the characters were pretty much like on a, on a pretty forward, they weren't like in deep space or anything like that. How are you going to fit those in to, to make that like a standing figure against this the figure that's sitting down or so I think that had something to do with it too, in terms of being able to scale and fitting yeah. things into the, into the image. Just the, the um, logistics of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because all my, if, if you ever see my early stuff, it was very like the characters are very much in the, uh, in the very front of the picture plane mm-hmm. and I don't have a lot of depth. So it's like, a, and that comes, I think from my interest in Max Beckman, because his, his, his work was very much like a theater. It was like, a platform and the characters are in the platform and they were all crammed in there. So for me, that was, but yeah, deep space has never been a, something I've been um, totally, I mean, I, in terms of my own work is I know I don't show a lot of deep space. Yeah. Which Uh I think also is a contributor to the aesthetic that people call, I think, cartoon. Yeah, or, yeah, or, right, or comic right, is is that right. it's the surrounded figures, and then it's it's the the more or less keeping this kind of one plane mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. space going, and right. and and there's something about that too that makes it kind of seem so narrative mm-hmm. because it's such a clear form of communication. You've yeah. got your figures up front and center; they're mm-hmm, really mm-hmm. easily readable with your eye mm-hmm. because they've got these sort of exaggerated forms. Right. And so there's something about it that I think we're just kind of trained to interact with images that are like that in a different way, mm-hmm. where we mm-hmm. think that they're kind of inherently didactic or telling me a story. Right. Because it's if you think of images of people who are telling us something, like out in life, like the little walk guy on the on the walk sign, like he's right, he's right. what he's 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 exaggerated, he's one plane <laughs> of space, yeah. all of it. So I think that it's yeah. it's interesting because you're 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 using this aesthetic, but I think it also changes the way in which people come to read it. So they're mm-hmm, like, okay, mm-hmm. what is Bill's work saying? Like in this mm-hmm. way that it seems to be decipherable, I think in a clear way. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you, mm-hmm. I don't know, you see a Rothko or something, you're like, yeah, right. I'm not, I'm right. not expecting to get like a message <laughs> from this. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny that you mentioned signs because I mean, I, in some ways that's where my work has gone in the last, like, I don't know, 20 years or so, because I've, isolated the face or the head or like skulls and zombies. And because again, when I was making those larger narratives, the face was an important part of the image. And then as I, as I, well, I was, I had opportunity, I was working big because I was, I had plenty of space to work big and I had a lot of time. And then I moved to New York uh, and my, I I moved into a tiny studio. I did have a press in the studio, but it was a certain size. And so for me, I couldn't make larger ones. And so I started making these smaller ones. And then I said, well, in my brain, I think it was like, well, like what is the most important part of a, of a figure? And it's generally going to be the head where all the mm-hmm. expression is and all that. So I've always really last 20 years or so, I guess, just been focusing on the head. So depending on if it's an animal, like a cat or a bull or a, or then if it's a skull, which I've made many, many skulls mm-hmm. and I'm fascinated by skull images. I mean, I can keep making skulls forever, but just the, the, the head is, so in some ways it's like this sign, like, it's like, okay, 
it's this it's a cat with a cigar and a top hat and that's it there's nothing more like you say there's mm. no nothing more to it it's very clearly that's clearly what it is and so yeah it's so it's I've just sort of evolved into just really focusing on the head and mm. i and i really don't do those larger narratives anymore which i wish i i wish i I do wish I, I could make more of those, but my time is limited and those took yeah. a while. And I don't know. I think I've just been doing these heads for so long that it's, I just still find them fascinating. And yeah, uh, there's plenty to do with those heads. So I just well, keep making them. I'm sure anyone who's tried to make an image of a, of a human body, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have, they'll know how frustrating and difficult the head in the face is mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. how it really makes or breaks a composition mm -hmm, because we as these like social weird hairless two-legged apes we've evolved <laughs> to be so social mm -hmm. and to be able to read faces so well like this like mm -hmm. the like the, the tiniest shift in all of these muscles that we've got in the face mm -hmm, mm -hmm. makes us realize something like oh that person's actually upset or like she didn't like what i just said or whatever it is and so because of that a face to in art it has to be so precise and so perfect mm -hmm. there's no you can't there's no wiggle room with like an mm -hmm. arm like how wide is that arm i don't <laughs> right, know big right, or small right, like right. it doesn't really matter yeah, so i could yeah. i could see as a in your practice, like really understanding that there's so far to go. There's so far to dive into mm -hmm. just what a face can do right, and, right. and how do you make it do exactly what you want it to do is quite a challenge, I would guess. Yeah. I mean, well, it's, I mean, I've been doing this for so, so many of them now. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a bit of a formula, I guess, but it, it's like, there's an endless amounts of things you can do. And even, I mean, I will repeat myself with, certain things, but I mean, there's just, you can just keep repeating it and repeating it and, and, and just changing certain things, adding a hat, a cigar, making one eye droopy, putting an earring on the ear, a beard, long hair, whatever, no teeth, things like that. I mean, there's just so many different things you can, that you can do with it. And I'm always looking at, I'm looking, always looking at stuff that seeing how other people draw yeah. faces and stuff like that, or, or weird characters and stuff like that. So. Well, and I've always found that being around a lot of artists, being in art studios, being in print studios, there's something really incredible about people who have the ability to just sort of sit down and draw a human form mm -hmm. doing what they want it to do just off the top of their head. And it's something that I feel like, again, not to like, bring it back over and over again but I feel like that is something that cartoonists can do like you can just tell a cartoonist like I need a cat playing the trombone on a bar stool and they're like <laughs> right, I got right, it right? right like I right. I remember once Tim was doing some collaborative lithography with this really incredible tattoo artist Oni O'Leary who works down this is when we were down in Australia uh -huh. and she does a lot of human forms and uh -huh. We wanted we wanted to do a test of something, and she she just sat down and she just she just drew this dancing woman, and it just mm. it just came. I mean, it was the craziest thing. It just like yeah, came out yeah. of her pencil. It was like, uh -huh. how did that happen? And so, <laughs> while it's it's a very old conversation about like art versus craft versus cartoons, and mm -hmm. I think cartoons mm -hmm. sometimes do get put in the in the grand scheme of things lower down on the the great art hierarchy yeah, or under a Rothko or something like that. Uh -huh. the, some of the most impressive just technical skill that I've seen artists have are who people who work 
in that kind of cartoonish sort of way, in that right. way where it's like right. the practice is the human form and the human form communicating uh, something it can be super, yeah. super yeah. impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I, but it's, I think nowadays it's become really, I mean, the, the cartoon, I mean, the, in comics have gotten a lot more yeah. uh, attention, like artists like Cause and a lot of the street art people, graffiti artists. I mean, even though they're using words, they're, they're very cartoony. So I think it's interesting to see how that, how these kinds of this language is, is, is becoming more and more mm. accepted or becoming mainstream in some ways. Like, because like I say, like when I was in grad school, if, if I had been talking about comics and, and, or just that kind of art people would, or that kind of imagery, the teachers would have been like, ah, what are you talking? You know, yeah. like, it would have yeah. been, it wasn't considered art. It was considered this low form of or image making. <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, I think there's there's been such an explosion of different artists using that and and so I mean and also culturally I think like the Japanese have, I mean they're really the 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 all their cute characters and Hello Kitty mm-hmm. and there's just this was this explosion of and then with like Takashi Murakami and his yeah. whole movement and those artists and I think there's just been a huge influence and ex- that's expanding and expand- going further and further. And I and also think like pop culture itself has become very interested in these kinds of imagery, this kind mm-hmm. of imagery. And, and so, yeah, I think it's at one time it was, there was definitely this big separation and, but now I think you can see it coming together and yeah, it's, it's, it's I, I don't know. It's been really exciting for me to see how people, the different ways people use these, this kind of art making and, approach and you mentioned tattoos i mean that's become a a a source for me i like i mean i don't have tattoos but all my a lot of my friends have tattoos Mm -hmm. so it's it's been fun just getting to i mean that would have been another top a subject or art form that got very little attention back when i was in grad school but nowadays it's just exploding and it's just it's such a great resource it's source of just amazing imagery yeah and and i think that that versatility that a tattoo artist needs mm-hmm. is incredible mm-hmm. because someone like Oni she does she does all these tattoos is mostly of mostly of the female form mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and most most of it is like super dirty and like very <laughs> creative and so like yeah. you someone came in and they they just described this like really specific orgy mm-hmm. scene and she's mm-hmm. like yeah mm-hmm. here you go she can just right, draw it up right, right. she's just insanely talented but because of that collaborative nature like they need to be so versatile and and yeah. it's, it's funny you should you should mention yeah that the kind of like the tattoos in that way as well because there's in tasmania there's the museum of old and new art i don't know if you've uh-huh. you've heard of it but it's it's this private museum wow. huh. it's got this crazy story that the guy who ran it made his money counting cards i think he like huh. he, he came up with like a formula for counting cards uh-huh. and became uh-huh. immense, immensely wealthy got uh-huh. banned from all the casinos in the world <laughs> right. and oh, to have this art collection and they have a collect in their collection is the back tattoo of this guy named Tim and he's alive and he goes and he sits you know on a pedestal with gallery lighting just meditating with earphones in Uh for a Uh few days a year but when he dies his skin's going to be donated to the museum and so it's this kind of like next step of that Uh and it's it's he's in the museum with Cause and Banksy's and uh-huh, Murakami's uh-huh, like uh-huh. like it's it's he, that art of that tattoo artist is going to be in a collection with wow, yeah like 
the canon of yeah, early twenty yeah, first yeah, century totally. artwork. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's. I was. I. I saw this documentary about Don Ed Hardy, and I mean, I, I about Don Ed Hardy's tattoos. He's like mm-hmm. everywhere, but I. I didn't know much about him, and then I, I was. It was really cool to find out that. I mean, he's. He's was totally into fine. I mean, he's like a fine artist that just happened to get into tattoos, and the way he talks about fine, his art, and the his 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 influences. I mean, it's just like he's an art. He. He's like a pure artist in that way, as mm. opposed to like just being some guy that sort of figured out how to do tattoos. I mean, he, he had this really rich knowledge of thing of art and all that and things that he was interested in and the way he talked about his work. And I, and the more I find out about tattoo artists, it's really it's great because they, they are they have this deep knowledge about you know, the history of art and those kinds of things. And so, yeah, I mean, I've been it's been a really great another. I mean, I've been it's been in some ways it was cool that I really didn't know much about that. Because now I like I'm always looking for tat- just interesting tattoo images, tattoo books. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always paying attention to people's tattoos when I see them walking around. I'm like, well, check that one out. Yeah, but it's it's just it's it's really just exciting to be able to like have this whole other area that I just didn't have much knowledge about because I was coming up in a time where you needed to be looking at fine art as yeah. opposed to looking at all this other popular art, which now is blowing up and becoming a part of what we call it fine art. Do you think you will get a tattoo at some point with this new interest? Yeah. yeah. I've been, I've been, I, I was, I was talking to John Hancock and mm-hmm. he might, I might go with John Hancock if we, we're talking about it. So, cause he's learning how to tattoo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that when I, I saw you all. Yeah. So we've been talking, he says he's got to do some more training. I was going to do, I think he might do a little small one by John. Cause that would have a lot of meaning because we're friends and, and the fact that, I mean, I've always looked at, he's got tattoos all over me mm-hmm. and, uh, but just, just the, the it's been to have a lot more meaning because he. Yeah. Be so, yeah. That would be very cool. You know, but it, it'll be some probably little tiny little, we were thinking about some sort of a hobo flea. Oh, <laughs> hobo cute. flea or like a hobo cat. So, so cute. Old, tiny kind of depression era looking character. Well, there's those like old hobo symbols. Uh huh. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. I always thought those would make a cool tattoo. Uh-huh. The one that says like you can get work here, or right. the water's right. good to yeah. drink. Because yeah. they're, they're some of them are really beautiful and and simple. But yeah, I, yeah, I was always like it'd be kind of fun to get a hobo hobo marking. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, I mean, why not? Why not? <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned a little bit when we were chatting before we recorded about the fact that you do this the zine machine you've got this event that's now around zines it's sort of like a a zine fest i'm curious i want to know more about that but i'm also sort of interested in is there a distinction between like cartoons and zines i mean like how does those worlds overlap for you Mm -hmm. well i mean actually it's a z it's called the zine machine but it's a printed matter festival so it is it is printed printed materials but there are like lot and lots of zines. I mean, for me, it's, I mean, I, I, for me, a zine can be pretty much anything in terms of, it's just like a pamphlet, a book, a fold out or whatever. And so that it could be illustrated that way. I mean, I, I, I do like the more illustrated zines as mm-hmm. opposed to the more text heavy zines. Uh, again, I think it goes back to my being a kid. I just like to look at the pictures. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm definitely drawn more towards the, 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 I mean, in fact, when we were, when I came out to Santa Fe, we went to that Echo Mano Press uh, uh-huh. store, yeah. 
which is, I guess, just down the street from where you work. But mm-hmm. Yeah, almost across fact, the street. In fact, we saw you after we were there. We went down. But anyway, they had these beautiful, they weren't comic books, but and I bought a few of them. They were, I guess they, you could call them a zine or a little illustrated book, but just really just beautiful little illustrations in this book. For, I mean, it's pam, zine format, but it was, it was, there was really no text in it. They were screen printed. So, I mean, is it a book? Is it a magazine? Is it a zine? Is it, what is it? But that's why I'm, I mean, I, I love running this thing or, it, well, actually this year is the first time I'm running it by myself because the folks who helped me with it before, or we worked together on it before they've got other, they have other things cooking, so they weren't able to do it. But so, I mean, I just said, I'll, I'll just take it on by myself. But anyway, it just, I mean, I just love it because I can go around and look at all this different kind of material that's being created. Like someone just signed up there, they did it. They've been making coloring books. Mm. I know people who are really hardcore about zines and they, they actually like, they're like a distribution, like a DIY distribution. And I mean, it's just, to me, it's like a great, it, as someone who's interested in printed materials, I think like zines and related stuff like zines or book, little booklets or things like that are just, are, are just wonderful objects. And as, as a printmaker and someone who's been making things and things like that, a booklet to me, you know, it's like, there's something it's a, it's it has more to it. It's like, it's not just a piece of paper with an image on it. It's multiple pieces of paper yeah. with images on it or text or whatever. So it's like this really, and I think anybody who's in a book, people would say, well, this is exactly what book people are into. So, I mean, I don't think there's really any difference. It's like a, yeah. it's like a, a thing with pages. Mm-hmm. And it's like, is it a book? Is it a zine? Is it a magazine? Is it a comic? Whatever. I just, it just depends on how you want to, what you're, you're making and how you want to present it. You know? Yeah. And like probably like the intention of the creator and, and yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, so, and so, but I've always been interested in little books. When I was a kid, mm-hmm. I was like, I like little books. I don't know why. I guess maybe get like this three quarter size thing. Yeah. You, you know? just, you like, you Small. like things compact. Yeah, I like things yeah. <laughs> portable, compact. Yeah. I don't know totally. what, what that's about. Well, <laughs> When we met for the first time in person, you said you were you were out here in Santa Fe and you were part of what they call the, the Speedball Roadshow. What is that? Yeah, that's that's been fantastic. So Carlos Hernandez and I, Carlos is, I think a lot of people know who Carlos is. He is an artist in Houston. And anyway, Carlos had, had been working with Speedball. This was, ooh, I don't know, what, maybe almost 10 years ago, perhaps, something like that, eight years ago. Anyway, Carlos had been working with Speedball, helping them develop some of their fluorescent inks and some other things. He they, he had been working with them, and then they started wanting to make professional inks or inks that would that that had. I mean, so there, there had, some people had used their inks for professional in a professional way. However, they were on purpose. Like, okay, we're going to make a whole range of professional inks, relief inks. So Carlos said, "Hey, well, you should talk to Bill because he's in North Carolina." right down two hours from where you guys make your ink. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, I got to know the speedball team and it's been great. And anyway, we started thinking like, Hey, what what could we do? Well, what during the New York print week, a few years, about about four or five, about five years, six years ago, I was in New York for speedball doing some stuff. And Carlos was in New York also not for speedball, but he was in New York for a show he was in pretty sure that's right. But anyway, we were like thinking, hey, well, why don't we just do um, some kind of a traveling thing where we both go on the road and Speedball sponsors us 
and we just spread the the gospel of of ink and print mm-hmm. and so they just they were like yeah for sure okay cool let's you can do that and then so they we slowly got into it and then really got into it and did a lot but then covid came along and kind of knocked us out there for a few years but now we're we're picking it back up so when we came to santa fe we were the road show basically we were had gone to Tamarin and we interviewed the folks some folks at, at Tamarin and then we went to Tackatch and 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 hung out there and got and David got to hang out with David and actually David started hanging out with us and we came up to Santa Fe and and then we were at Black Rock Editions and we were just doing some basically reporting talking mm-hmm. to people just just sort of say hey look this there's all this stuff going on in printmaking and since we have a lot of connections we're able to get in with meet people yeah. at Tamarin or meet folks at, or go to Black Rock or go to, to Tech or go, we, fortunately, we know a lot of people at universities. So we're able to really connect with the universities and it, the universities like it because we come in, we do some workshops, we've got materials. And, and so it's a, a, they're like, Hey, great. Here's these guys traveling around. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's see what they, let's uh, have them come by. So yeah. it's been, it's been great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that you, you all also, know how to put on a bit of a show. So it is, <laughs> if, if you want to get your students excited about printmaking, I think it's your yeah. good choices to do that. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. that's mostly Carlos. He's the showman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he's, I mean, it's been so much fun traveling with him and we have a great time. And I think that's what we try to do with it. We try to make it show how print printmaking is, is such a fun, it's a fun bunch of people. Yeah. We, do, we really enjoy hanging out and learning from each other and I mean, like what you're doing, there's this great community. And uh, I mean, I don't think any other form has it. I mean, it's just, it's anyway, so it's, we feel like it's really important to share this with people who are learning or, or people who have been in it for a while, but maybe they're, they're sort of not a part of that. So we try to share that and spread that, spread that love to print, uh, printmaking. Totally. So, you well, know? And I think, yeah, speaking of, of, of Carlos and, and the fun of printmaking and all of that, it mentioned him doing this like, outlaw october and so i'm talking to uh-huh. people who are un- under the the outlaw umbrella which uh-huh. includes uh-huh. you despite the fact that you don't have any tattoos so far yeah right uh, and so i want to yeah 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 you're the, the the straight man for the outlaws the, yeah the old the old, old normal guy but i guess i want to ask just what is your conception of like what outlaw printmakers are and where they kind of fit into the story of printmaking I mean, I think I think the the main thing is that we're all basically narrative artists. We mm-hmm. make we make stories. We print or we come from a tradition. We all like the same a lot of the same artists, like going way back to Durer and then up Hogarth and mm-hmm. Goya, Posada. I know, yeah, Posada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are all we all really love these artists, and so I think that's the main thing that ties us together. Now there is definitely the more like sideshow kind of thing where folks gets kind of crazy and. But actually, it, it, we're all pretty, we're all pretty, well, we're all committed. We're super committed to our craft and, and sure. our art form. And so I think that like someone like Huck, I mean, I mean the guy works so hard. I mean, well, and I think we all like really, really work hard and really dedicated to the craft, to our craft and our art form. But yeah, I mean, I think the, the outlaw thing is just sort of a nice way it, it, because a lot of our work is satirical. A lot of it's sort of irreverent. A lot of it is non non-traditional in that it's maybe kind of oh i don't know i don't know we just just freaky weird uh-huh. like, or, or things like that i mean like carlos's work is for he loves like monster movie posters and dripping 
makeup and crazy fireworky kind of stuff. And then Hancock Brothers, I mean, mm-hmm. you can't, can't compete with them. I mean, they're out there. They're so far out there. And, but it's just, there's all the, the thing, the underlying thing is that we're just having a, we really love what we do and we're really passionate about it. We like to spend time together. And again, it, it really gets back to this. We're all narrative artists mm-hmm. and making narrative, narrative art. And in, in, in a time when the art world is so diverse and so lots of different kinds of things being made, I think that's, that's definitely something that ties us together. And we're printmakers yep. predominantly. A lot of us predominantly make black and white imagery or mo- monochromatic. Um, not a whole, I mean, Hancock brothers use a lot of color, but I mean like, or John Star Wars uses a lot of color too, but, but anyway, the point being is that I think it, it, there's this bold graphic imagery that's yeah. been made. I've been trying to answer the the question for myself as I've taken this on. And (laughs) there's something that's a little bit hard to put into words, but I think it has a little bit to do with subversion a bit. And and like you said, like the, like the art, many of the artists that you named that you all draw inspiration from, like Hogarth, Posada, um, Uh, Goya, even, I mean, these are, these were subversive artists. These were artists who were not doing, not in step with the dominant narrative but right, still right, had right. people who were right. connecting with their work and right. were making work that was saying something. And so I feel like there's something in there too, but it's very difficult to sort of exactly pinpoint. It's mm-hmm. almost like, what is, mm-hmm. was that old thing about like, it's pornography. Like I just, I know it when I see it. It's like that yeah, one yeah, about yeah. like what the outlaw sort of right. aesthetic is. Right. right. And yeah, well, we've sort of defined ourselves this way or it's sort of gotten, but I mean, there are tons of, there are tons of artists out there. I mean, there's like, again, like all the, I would say a lot of tattoo artists, their, mm-hmm. their work is very outlaw. I think it's just sort of a, it's a, it, when you hear outlaw art, outlaw printmaking, it sort of conjures up a certain kind of a attitude or vibe. And I mean, it, it, it someone might say, wow, outlaw, what does that mean? What, who, who are they? But it, it, it's sort of more, I think, more like, I don't want to say cinematic. It's, it's made up. It's not for, it's like we're not riding around beating right, people up. Right, right. Sort of, it's just sort of a, a, and it's not an attitude because we're all like quite friendly people. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think it's just more like historic, like James Dean, leather jacket, that, that whole thing. Like, uh, again, I don't have a leather jacket. So <laughs> Rose has a very nice leather jacket. So anyway, but the point being is that I think it's just more of like a, 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 an adjective that we can use that sort of mm-hmm. helps helps people sort of say, oh, okay, what kind of work do you do? Well, it's kind of outlawish. Yeah, know, so. yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, some of the some of the group would like to be more outlawy, but <laughs> but anyway, every we're all we're all just making art. And yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. And so, what's on the horizon for you? What's coming up? Any? I mean, you said the the. The zine machine right. is the, on the horizon, the, the at least. Zine machine's coming up. I've actually been doing, making stuff related to the elections and voting and all that kind of, uh-huh. I've been making, and it's, it's nothing to do with my, my sort of narrative work. It's just signage and things like that. So I've, I've been doing a lot of that with screen printing. And in terms of my own work, I just, just, just keep making it. Things come up. It's sort of like, mm-hmm. like just, I think that's the one thing about it is that if you keep making your work, and you're engaged and involved, things happen. But like the road show, Carlos and I will be back in New York this fall. We'll be back doing, some, we'll be visiting places in the spring. And uh, but like, like I say, we were, it was great coming out to Santa Fe and Albuquerque and seeing you and, and, and getting to know that area. I hadn't been, I'd been to Albuquerque, but never to Santa Fe. So 
But anyway, I mean, I think it's become that that's what my art life has become is just getting a chance to do some traveling, making work, teaching. So things just come along and I'm just along for the ride, see what happens. Beautiful. Well, where can people find you and follow you and find out if the roadshow is coming to a city near them? Yeah. Well, so my, my Instagram is at Lino Bill. Uh, I do have a website, which I need. I'm like, yeah, how many times have you heard that? Like, yep. I need updated. I think that um, that's, that's like, it's actually just one word in the art yeah, world. Yeah, I have yeah. a website, but it needs to be updated. Is it's, exactly. it's, it's, it's always there. Yeah. <laughs> true. So true. So yeah, the Instagram is the best way to see what I'm up to. Uh, yeah, at Lino Bill. Cool. On Instagram is the best place to catch me. So. Awesome. And well, in I, terms of the speedball, I mean, yeah. sort of the roadshow, we will be in New York for a print week. So anybody who's coming to print week will be there. So hope to see folks in, in your print week. It's a great event. Yeah, for sure. I've actually never been. Oh, you got to go. I yeah. know. I know. I'm... I'm looking at you should do some live broadcasting from there do do some not live right but do some recording on site that would be that would be like that's what i was thinking it would be it could be really fun or even just yeah do like a just a live stream on the instagram of walking around and yeah making people talk to me it could be super fun just putting them on the spot (laughs) well i mean you do such a good job of connecting so i mean i gotta say it's amazing with different artists that you I mean, I've learned about so many artists by just your the, the podcast. Oh, so, cool. So, I mean, I think you've met, you've, I think, yeah, I mean, you got a big following, so I think it'd be great to find out. You seem to be able to find those people, so I keep, keep looking and make, letting us know who they are. Awesome. Well, thanks, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hope we get a chance to see you again down this way or maybe at Print Week. And uh, yeah, it's been really fun chatting and getting yeah. to know more about you and your practice. Well, thanks a lot, Miranda. It's been great and I appreciate it. And let's just keep on making prints. Yes, please. <laughs> and that's our show for this week. Join me again next week for my guest will be Dennis Wignett, who you might know on Instagram as Wolfbat. We talk about Dennis's early exposure to art through the skate culture, how and when his prints evolved into three-dimensional sculptures, and the incredible power of shared art experiences. If you can't wait until next week to get some Dennis in your life, head to Corpus Christi this weekend for the Oso Bay Biennial. He'll be there. I'll be there. It'll be a party. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. (laughs) 